What's in it for me? That's apparently a question that we are all asking ourselves all the time these days. Uh, It's not unnecessarily a bad question. You know, in the workplace, what's in it for me is encouraged so that people don't waste their time attending meetings that they don't contribute any value to or that just waste their time. You could save precious time and precious resources. What's in it for me is also what drives our social media feeds as the algorithms serve up what we find interesting, which may or may not be a good thing. We keep scrolling, though, because what's in it for me might be some hits of dopamine, you know, some nice chemical reactions as we see something. Um, Perhaps it's anger or whatever, but that's what's in it for us. As we look at Luke 15, verses 11 through 32 today, the parable of the prodigal son, which apparently I said in a different way last week, and didn't even realize it. The parable of the prodigal son or the lost sons. Uh, this question, what's in it for me, is lurking in the background for all three main characters, both of the sons and the father are bouncing off of this question of interest of self-interest, and it it could be good or bad. What's in it for you as we dig into this passage? Well, I would say that as you understand what's in it for God, as you understand who He is, you will find a way, in fact, that is the way, to break free from all of the unhealthy self-interest that we engage in. And it is the way away from that and toward a healthy, fulfilling life. Would you see that with me? Let's look together at Luke 15. We're just going to read verses 11 through 19 to start off. And we'll, Lord willing, cover the whole passage, but we'll just start with Luke 15. 11 through 19. This is God's Word. <clears throat> Luke 15, 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger excuse me, of them said to his father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. 
This is God's word. Lord, would you bless our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our lives as we look together at your word. Would you meet us here and bless us, making us more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. I heard someone in a podcast I was listening to this week say that that question, what's in it for me, is part of of a wider trend in our culture, in our society. Uh, It falls under this general trend, and maybe you're not like this. I find it to be true of me. But that we have this, this ongoing desire for experiences in life that bring pleasure. Uh, This guest on the podcast said, basically, we're all demanding almost that experiences and situations gratify us, gratify me, we say, or I'll move on. And if you have a phone, you probably experienced this, right? If you have a smartphone, you know, and you're, you're hanging out and something isn't pleasing to you, you can move on easily, instantly, right? You're, you're waiting in line and you, know, you just pull out your phone and read your news feed, watch a TikTok video, make a phone call, play a short game. You can just check out. You don't have to be where you are. You can find gratification in another way. If the traffic's too slow, ask your Maps app for an alternate route. Better yet, have it automatically suggest one to you so that you can keep moving, that you don't get stuck. If any situation is not interesting enough, you can find something else to do on your phone especially, but so many other ways that we can find something gratifying. If the sermon is, is not holding your interest Uh, You can be just looking on your phone at another Bible passage. Someone has done that. I've done that. I sit in the pews sometimes too, at other churches as well as this church. And I've done every one of those things. In fact, if we're honest, I think we could all say, yeah, you know what, if we haven't done the exact things I mentioned, we've done something similar. Where if, if if we're not being gratified, if we're not finding something interesting We check out from what it is and move on to something else. I've I've done that. We've all done that. We're regularly asking, well, what's in it for me? And if there's nothing there, then we move on. I hope you realize that God is very much interested in not only what makes you feel good, what you're interested in that makes you feel good, but also what is for your good. God cares about what makes you feel good, but he also cares even more about what is for your good. And as we look at this passage and continue to unpack it, it's clear that God's abundant desire for your good is the way you can break free from destructive forms of self-interest. There are things that self-interesting, you know, you should eat, right? You should exercise. You should have some time. You should engage in self-care. You know, there are forms of self-interest that are healthy. But what I'm talking about is how do we break free from the destructive forms of self-interest, from the self-defeating desires that lead you to just fall down in failure, 
from the self-promoting desires that lead you to look down on others in your success? How do we break free from those? Because they both lead to emptiness. Success and failure, when it's just a self-interested thing, leaves you empty. We see that in this passage super clear. And we'll we'll look at it, first of all, with the self-defeating desires. Excuse me, the self-defeating desires. We see this in the the part that we read of the, the prodigal son, the wasteful son, the younger son in verses 11 through 16. He asked his father to give him his share of the estate. Uh, that, that word estate essentially means stuff. The, the material possessions that would come to this son upon the father's death. In other words, his inheritance. And as a younger son, he would get uh, a less than an even portion. The older son would get a double portion. The other children. Seems like there's only two, so... He would get a third or so of everything. So you realize the son is basically saying, hey, dad, let's not wait until you die. Give me this stuff now. I'd like my part, my cut of your possessions. So the father divided his wealth between the two sons. His, his life is the word there, literally uh, his stuff. The son takes his portion, heads away, and squanders his estate. That word word squander is the image of scattering seed. You know, he's got the estate, he's got the money, and he's just like, I'll spend it here, I'll spend it there, you know. I'll spend it everywhere, like a Dr. Seuss kind of thing. He's scattering it, scattering it everywhere, not paying much attention. He, He spends it on, as the text says, loose living. That's translating a phrase that means wasteful. Uh, It used to be a more common word, prodigal. That's why we call it the parable of the prodigal son. That word right there, wasteful, is what prodigal means. Uh, One example in those days that someone deemed something wasteful was washing feet with spiced wine. Why use water when you can wash your feet with spiced wine? That's pretty much the definition of wasteful. You're taking something much more expensive and for some other use and using it because you can, right? And that's what he did. He scatters his money, his resources everywhere, wasting it, not considering the future. And it says he spent everything, then a famine came. Right? He's all out of resources, and then everyone runs out of food. He is in a situation where no one has anything to share. <clears throat> Everybody's hungry. He's used up his resources, and now he is lacking, the text says, impoverished. <clears throat> he can't make ends meet. He's in a deficit. He can't even live paycheck to paycheck. He's starving. He's constantly hungry. And he starts working for a pig farmer. Swine farmer. Pigs. Which was disgraceful in and of itself for someone who was born and bred as a descendant of Abraham. For a Jewish person to take such a job says he's really hit bottom. 
Pigs were disgusting for them, unclean. And to be around them would make one unclean. And here he is not only around them, taking care of them, but he's looking longingly at what these pigs are eating and saying, I'm so hungry, I would like to eat this pig slop. And no one is giving him anything. You know, we don't know for sure. The text doesn't say what led him out, what led him to ask his dad for the money and led him off to a distant country. But it's clear that it's a downward spiral of failure. It's the, the, the self-defeating desires that's, that all of us are subject to, right? This is particularly something that is challenging for younger people. But it's a struggle that we all have. And it's, it's, it's a common occurrence, as we see with him, that it's when, when you finally, when you finally reach the bottom, when your circumstances are just so hopeless you can't deny it anymore, that you begin to find a way out that you begin to find a real hope. This desire for pleasure left him empty. And it is from that place of emptiness, the downward spiral of failure, that he found hope from nothing. He, as Jesus says in our passage, came to his senses. He came to his senses. <clears throat> Verse 17, he saw reality for what it was, that, that he really couldn't do anything. He was empty. He came to his senses, literally came to himself, and he begins to factor in what he actually knows about his father. He begins to think, what can I do? And he remembers home. He remembers his father, and in particular his father's character. And he, he recognizes that, you know what, his father treated his hired servants well. He paid them, and they worked, and he took care of them. That his father was a person who took care of those who were in a relationship with him, who worked for him. And so here the son thinks, oh, I can go back. Look at his words, verse 17. When he came to his senses, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up, go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. <clears throat> Just in the idea of him coming to his senses and realizing all of these things, right? It's so obvious and true to us. And I'm sure it was obvious to his father that he was going off in a foolish direction. And that is the nature of sin. We don't know why he went off and went down this self-defeating spiral, right? And a lot of times we don't understand why we do it either. You know that next drink. You know that next hit. You know that next click. You know that next, you, you shouldn't do it. You know the thing that's about to come out of your mouth shouldn't come out of your mouth. And you do it. 
and you apologize, and you try to make it right, and then it happens again. It makes no sense. Sin is irrational. It is part of our brokenness. It is so often that it's not until we get completely broken. It's not until we hit rock bottom, we begin to find hope from nothing. And, and it, nothing has changed in his circumstances, right? He just remembers reality a little more clearly. And he says, you know what, my father, I'll go to my father. And he, he heads back home. And we read, thank you, <clears throat> and we read, Verse 20, he got up and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His, his, his father makes a fool of himself in those days. You, you didn't run, uh, certainly after a son who had been away and wasted your resources and already insulted you, essentially saying, I wish you were dead. You did not run after such a one. And that's what this father did. Moved with compassion. He embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, verse 21, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. What the father said to his servants. And there, you notice there, something's missing. Verse 19, he said, he planned to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. But in verse 21, he says, I've sinned against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And there's nothing after that except, but the father said to his slaves, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it <clears throat> and let us eat and celebrate. And for a long time, I thought the father had kind of cut him off, calling for the celebration but as I've thought that through and looked at this passage and others in a similar vein, I think the son just stopped there. I think he realized, having come to his senses and having seen his father looking for him, coming to him, reaching out to him, embracing him, kissing him, welcoming him, accepting him. I, I think he either realized he didn't need to ask to work for him, or he realized how offensive that would be. That here's his father, accepting him as his son, not counting his past actions against him, but receiving him fully, and so he just ended it there with, <clears throat> I am unworthy to be called your son. And I've come to that conclusion because it's so much like the story Jesus tells in a couple of chapters in Luke 18, where you have a tax collector and a Pharisee, and they go up to the temple to pray. And the tax collector essentially says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he had to offer was that prayer of mercy. Whereas the Pharisee in that parable, and Lord willing, we'll look at that in the future, the Pharisee talked about all of his good deeds. You know, to stop with I am unworthy is to recognize that you have nothing to offer, that you cannot pay back 
that in fact God doesn't want you to pay back, that in fact God loves you because he is a God who loves you, that the father loved his son in the parable because he was his son, and that no matter what the son did, the father would continue to love him. And to recognize that truth is where you find the hope from nothing because you have nothing. And the extension is obvious, brothers and sisters, that we have nothing to offer to our Father. You have nothing to offer to your Father in heaven. There is nothing you can do to pay Him back except to simply receive the gift that He offers, His unconditional love and acceptance of you. To say, I am unworthy. Have mercy on me. And He does. When we've reached that place where we realize our only hope is, is nothing in us, but all in God. And that, that, that will take us from that empty place and self-defeating desires the younger son speaks of. But there's another part to the parable here. The emptiness of the self-promoting desires. <clears throat> the self-promoting desires. On the other hand, it was the, upward, the downward spiral of, of failure. In this case, it is the upward spiral of success, which is just as harmful but harder to see. See the older brother in verses 25 through 30. Look at the text with me. He's out in the field as he probably always was. We read, the older son was in the field, and he came and approached the house. He heard music and dancing, verse 26. And he summoned one of the servants and, and, and began inquiring, what these things could be. Verse 27, And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. <clears throat> that seems kind of weird to us. But in those days, you, you didn't eat meat. Meat was for a special occasion, so you'd be fattening up one of the cows. And when that time came whatever circumstance, you'd say, oh, you, know, you can't go down to the fresh grocer, okay? Or giant. Uh, or call Uber Eats and have them deliver something. So they had a fattened calf ready. And it had to be a special occasion. So the father says, this is a special occasion. Let's kill the fattened calf. Let's feast music and dancing because the son has returned home. And what's, what's the older son's response? Verse 28 he became angry and was not willing to go in. <clears throat> and what does the father do? His father came out and began pleading with him. And then we learn the son's anger. What's causing it? Why he was refusing? Why he did not desire to go into the celebration? He was not willing. We learn the source of his anger. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> he answered and said to his father, Look. Literally, look you. So many years I have been serving, literally slaving for you. And I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Man, you could unpack that for a while. You could go a lot of directions in that. But just notice, essentially, this older brother has OBS. Older brother syndrome. Speaking in absolutes, you never, I always. Fault finding, finger pointing, you, 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 him, you. Exaggeration. I have been slaving away, never disobeying. And yet, do you realize in all of that, he sounds, if you look at it in one sense, very successful, right? He's done everything right, nothing wrong. He wasn't like his younger brother who went off and wasted all on prostitutes. How did he even know that? He was out in the field and just came back. He did not know that. He knows less than we do about what his brother was doing. Because we heard the rest of the story. He heard nothing. But he says and judges, he was off, wasted his money on prostitutes. Maybe he went away and started up a business. He had a side hustle and it paid off. He doesn't know. But he's got a story. And he knows what he would do and what he wouldn't do. And he knows how his father should act and how his father should not act. And these are the great marks of self-righteousness. If you wonder if you have OBS, older brother syndrome, self-righteousness, ask yourself, am I feeling empty even though I feel like I have done everything right? Am I critical and finger-pointing and blame-shifting on everyone and taking no responsibility for myself? There's a sense of emptiness despite having an abundance. Look what the Father says at the end of that little rant. Verse 31. And he, the Father, said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. The great underlying problem of self-righteousness is that when you're looking at relationships based on a contract, based on merit, based when you're valuing people on what they do and valuing yourself on what you achieve, you will always compare yourself with other people. You will always be able to find fault with people. You will always be lacking and feel empty. Even though you have everything. Son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But he never saw it. He's living as if he's poor. He keeps trying to prove himself keeping score, keeping a record of his rights and their wrongs, never having enough recognition 
threatened by others' experiences of joy, always ending up empty because relationships are filled by love, not rewards. You don't have to prove your worth. The Father says that. Everything I have is yours. You have always been with me. You don't have to prove your worth. You you can't prove your worth. Your worth isn't in anything you've done. Your worth is not in how much better you are than the other person. Your worth is in the fact that God values you. That God has made you in His image. That God has created you as a human being. That alone. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect of, you know, that alone would make you worthy of worship. If we were to see you in glory made perfect, we would bow down before you just merely being a full human being. There is no place for calculating based on achievement. There's no one worthy of His grace. It flows from God's compassion. It's ultimately this perspective on God's interest that's going to set us free from those self-defeating desires and from these self-promoting desires to other-centered desires. Look at verse 32. The Father continues speaking. Son, you've always been with me. All that I have, all that is mine is yours. Verse 32. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, was lost and has been found. We had to. Uh, that word in the Greek is day. It is necessary from a heart of compassion. If you understand, God says through the Father in this parable, if you understand my heart and my compassion, as the first two parables in this chapter talked about, the lost sheep, the lost coin, if you understand the joy that I have that you would be with me, God says, the the joy I have in seeing someone who's destroying their life and defeating themselves, heading off, then you would recognize that we have to celebrate when anyone realizes where they're at, when they hit bottom and they find hope. Only in me, God says, in the one who has loved you and has compassion on you, who will forgive you and be gracious to you, the one who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That God so loves both sons that he would send his Son that people like them might be set free. And it is so obvious that it is so much easier to come to Jesus when you've ruined your life and defeated yourself than it is when you're proud of yourself and think you've done nothing wrong. But do you see in this passage, this is the most compelling and hardest thing for me, that God loves those self-righteous people too. That God is inviting them in. As Jesus is telling this parable to the Pharisees who are criticizing him, God uses Jesus in that moment. And and he leaves it. Look at how he he leaves. He just leaves it there. That's the end of the story. 
We had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and began to live, was lost and has been found. That's how Jesus ends the story. Pharisees are like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Who's the older brother? And we don't know if they responded. We don't know if they turned to him, but what we do know is it is so clear that what God wants for us is the same kind of other-centered desire. That in fact, in both cases, with self-defeating and self-promoting efforts, our, our interest is only on ourselves. And so we go off on this quest for pleasure that's never going to end. Your desires are never going to be satisfied. You can't view enough porn, drink enough alcohol, do enough drugs, succeed and get to a high enough promotion, win enough championships to satisfy that desire because there's always going to be something more. On the flip side, as you're successful, if your focus is on your own achievement and how much better you are than them and how much you've done and how worthy you are, you're never going to recognize the relationships in your life. You're, you're never going to notice that you are alienated everyone in your life. Isn't it interesting that both of these relationships, I mean, both of these people cut off the relationships in their lives. The younger son insults his father and leaves home, cutting off all relationship with everyone there. The older brother stays home and cuts off relationship with his father and his brother. That's where self-interest always leads. That's a hard thing. But here's the thing. Because it's hard. Isn't it hard to have relationships in your family? Isn't it hard to have relationships with your friends? With coworkers? Isn't it hard to have relationships with people in the church sometimes? It's hard to have relationships. And so we want to run away and indulge ourselves, or we want to build ourselves up and say, well, at least I'm not going to be like them. When God would say, you know what? What I most want is for you to recognize, God says, I'm interested in you. Will you be as interested in other people? Will you move that direction? Will you move toward others, whether they look like they're ruining their lives? And that doesn't mean you help them ruin their lives. It doesn't mean you participate with them, but you draw near. You wait sometimes for them to come back and you embrace them when they do. Not beat them up and told you so. The flip side... Will you humble yourself and recognize you could never do enough? That all it takes is one sin to disqualify you. And that God in his grace and your self-righteousness and pride keeps calling you. And will you draw near to those kind of people? Will you resist the urge to put them 
in their place. We just love them. This is when we understand God's abundant desire for our good that we begin to break free. That we begin to say, you know what, God, you, you are willing to enter in that kind of relationship with me. From that place of relationship, I will enter into relationship with other people, not based on what they do or who they are, but solely on the basis of God's grace at work in me. And that will lead you to pray more. That will lead you <laughs> to get help from counsel from other people. That will lead you to a place of deeper relationships, hopefully with those people you are trying to build relationships with, but also with God himself. And that is the place of fulfillment. That is where God will meet you. As you try to love people like he loves you, he's going to meet you there. He will not leave you. He says, you know what? You're working hard. You you're saying, I can't do it. And God says, I'm going to meet you there. Just take a little, little step and you'll fail. And God will say, you know what? I, I still love you. And I'm with you. And all that I have is yours. I'm always with you. Especially as you seek to love others. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, <clears throat> Would you set us free from, <clears throat> excuse me, would you set us free from those self-defeating desires, the downward spiral of failure? I pray for those who have nothing, who feel completely empty, O oh Lord, because they've ruined their lives in their own eyes. Would you give them hope from nothing as they realize, you know what, you love them. You will forgive those who turn to you from their failure. I pray, O oh Lord, you'd set us free from self-promoting desires, that upward spiral of success that leads us to judge everyone, that leads us, O oh Lord, to a place where we find our hope in anything but you. Would you lead us away from that and to a hope in you, that we might be full, that we might have the grace of focusing on others. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.